because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. It's awesome to welcome current Sydney Kings head coach Chase Buford to the Basketball Podcast. This past season, Buford and the Sydney Kings won the 2021-22 NBL Championships. Buford was named the head coach of the Wisconsin Herd, the G League affiliate of the Milwaukee Bucks in 2019. He led Wisconsin to a league-best 33-10 record before the season was suspended due to the COVID-19 pandemic. He began his career in professional basketball in 2012 with the Atlanta Hawks as a regional scout and was promoted to a video intern. He was the coordinator of player development for the Chicago Bulls from 2015 to 17 and went on to G League assistant coaching positions with the Erie Bayhawks and the Delaware Bluecoats. Chase, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, wonderful to talk to you and uh, congrats on the season in Australia. Tremendous success winning the championship and I imagine just an incredible experience overall. Yeah, you know, it was it, it had some ups and downs. It was a it was a very interesting start. We got there, you know, quarantine Australia, and it was the peak of a Sydney outbreak. So for three months, everything was shut down, and our only outlet really was the team. And it was a fun group to get to invest in and, and to see it come full circle and, and see those guys get it done. It was just a joy to be a part of. Yeah, wonderful. And, uh, you know, nine years working on the coaching side of basketball and uh, six of those years part of a new staff with each time being the head coach's first year as a head coach or his first year in a new league. So we're going to talk about enriching your environment, building a program, culture, all those wonderful things, because you got to be very familiar with that after all those experiences, right? Yeah, you know, I've gotten to, to be a part of or, or, or get to coach myself as a first year coach or, you know, build, building a culture or building an environment for your team numerous times now in just the, the, my first decade or so working in the NBA and wanted to share some of those experiences and, and some ideas and, and things like that for other people who might be coming into those type of situations. You know, it is true. And I'm sure you're the same. I mean, as soon as sometimes you hear culture, like on a podcast or from someone talking about it, you know, it can turn us off a little bit because it seems to be a really overused word, but put it in perspective for us a little bit about what you mean by culture and then what you mean by it being obviously such an important part of your experiences. Yeah. You know, I think everybody, you know, every interview, every, it's just a big buzzword. I think everybody tries to act like they have this magical jar of culture that they're just going to come in and inject into your program. And I don't think that's really the case. I think your culture is always going to be a makeup or a byproduct of the personalities of the individuals in your group, whatever it's a team, an organization, whatever it is, the individuals will make up the culture and their character and their personalities will be what makes up the culture. As leaders or as coaches, what we can do really, other than picking the people and investing in the right people is creating an environment to build those culture, to build the bonds, to build the work ethic. And it's, it's all about the things you can control. And as, as a coach, you can't, or as a leader, you can't control every interaction that happens. You can't control the culture that goes on in your day-to-day basis. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be the individuals that make it as it goes, but you can control the environment. You can control the situations you put them in. You can control the messaging that you have that helps spark the bonds help spark the accountability, the relationships and all the things you need, the communication to grow 
your quote unquote culture over time. So give us maybe an example, a practical example that you've experienced in terms of controlling the environment in in relation to culture. Yeah, I think my favorite team building activity, we call it break bread. I think it's a term Coach Bud used in Atlanta and Milwaukee that he's taken from Coach Pop. And, you know, oftentimes it's on the road after a, after a road game the night after. In the NBL, we, we like to go pick a restaurant in whatever city we're in and, and have a couple tables if we get a private room, great, but just share some food and, and some wine, you know, for our, we have a bunch of older guys and professionals and men and whether you win or lose, sometimes it's nice to to laugh it off and, and share a couple of glasses of whatever you like and, and just, you know, let, let the high or the low kind of ease down back to neutral. And I think one of the big parts about that and talks about, you know, controlling the environment or the situations, I would always really strive to have it be family style meals where we don't have each guy order individually. They get their plate, they sit on their phone the whole time. And it's a very individualized process. Like, just bring us a bunch of food. We'll pass it around. It'll encourage us to talk and talk about what's good, what we liked, and we'll lead to whatever other conversations. And as we got the the process right throughout the year, I think everybody always looked really forward looked forward to those moments or those meals after games. And it was like, how quickly can our guys get out so we can all go eat together? That's probably you know in Milwaukee it was huge. Obviously in San Antonio, those meals are, are stuff of legend a little bit. But that's one way we're you're taking the guys and, and putting them to be together and force them to, to grow and to bond in an environment that's not basketball centric. Now they can go talk about basketball or whatever the heck they want to, but it's, it's a situation where, you know, they have to interact on the court. They have to interact in a locker room. They have to interact in the, the weight room or wherever it is, the bus. They don't have to interact when they go home. They don't have to interact when they go eat meals. But if you get them in a situation that's comfortable and casual and, and they just start to continue to bond and grow over things outside of the gym, outside of the court, I think it helps the spirit of your group. Again, it helps the environment because now guys enjoy talking to each other and, and all those things. So that's probably the, for me, the biggest con- consistent thing I think you can do is at any level is eat together and, and, and enjoy some food and, and whatever else you want to do together, whether it's win or lose as much as you can. That's great stuff. I imagine those are great environments to be in. And you talked about messaging. So talk to us a little bit about an example of controlling messaging. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, oftentimes you'll see it put up on the hallways and locker rooms or or whatever it is. Maybe it's a catchphrase or it's a sequence of words that try to define your identity. And I think whatever you choose in those moments better be really impactful. Because if they're going to see it every day and they're going to put it on their shirt or or whatever it is, the guys better resonate with it and understand those words and also be able to live those words in actionable steps every day. You know, we, we struggled a little bit at the beginning of the year, kind of trying to find that identity, an American guy with his thoughts, some Aussies and trying to put out their spin on in the players. And and we, we took some time to kind of evolve our, our identity, so to speak, as the year went on. And it's kind of funny. It, it came about after, I don't know if you've seen the video, the South Carolina football coach talking about, we need more dogs. And uh, we used that metaphor to, to, to kind of be dogs. And that was how we wanted to guard. And that kind of became our identity. And it was something that we almost stumbled into by accident more than anything. We, we had some stuff on the wall and that wasn't really what ended up becoming our team identity. And I think going into next year, we'll have to be even more thoughtful about how we engage the players, but also come to an agreement as a team, as a group, this is what we're going to be. And from day one, start pushing that message. And again, I, I said the words earlier, actionable steps are really important. Like pretty words are great on a wall. 
what can you act on? What can you say, did we do that today? When you're huddling, you know, are, are, we, are we representing that? Are we doing that? And, and have it be understandable and things that guys can resonate with. Yeah, great stuff. And of course, culture doesn't just apply to those things off the court. It applies to on the court too and building your defense and building your offense. So let's talk about them in terms of shaping your program. Is there a preference for you in terms of which one you start with? Defense is always for me the biggest thing. I think for every coach I've been able to either play under or work under that's you know really good was always a defense first coach. Going back to Coach Self at Kansas, you know, Coach Bud is a defense first guy. Obviously, my dad grew up in Larry Brown's coaching tree, and that was that was his mantra. Obviously, from those old Pistons teams on back, they were always defense first. And so, I think every film session we start, every drill to start practice, the the focus is always defense. We try to score as many things as we can as a defensive scoring score drills so that the priority is getting stops and because you can always you can't control if the ball goes in sometimes you can always control how you compete on the defensive end and, and the way you guard and as a team and as individuals so to your answer your question yeah, defense focus first I think at the end of the day the, the first thing you talk about is always going to be the thing that sticks in a player's mind a little bit more so I like to lead every message or every film session with transition defense it's the first section of every session after every game pretty much irregardless of the result or what happened. We just want to make sure our trans D habits are perfect. And so in terms of setting up your team, I think defensively, you know, Chris, we did a, a conversation not so long ago about defensive analytics and what different style of defenses look like in, in the numbers and how they translate on the floor. I think that's a really important step is to figure out, how you want to set up your defense. Do you want to protect the rim? Do you want to protect the three-point line? Are you going for steals and being super aggressive? Do you want to zone? Do you want to do all? There's a million different ways you can guard, and there's no right or wrong way. I think it's all about how you execute what you're doing. So finding out what you want to be your identity as a coach or leader, as a staff, whatever it is, and then starting to set up your team and, and set up the details of your drills and to set up every film session, every message you do to be in line with that style of defense or with that frame of mind. And everything always doesn't line up perfectly. But I think, you know, for us, we were a protect the rim at all costs. We were a don't foul, protect the rim team. So we packed the paint and we protect the rim and we tried to close out and we gave up a ton of threes and we lived with the results from certain players. And that was how we guarded. And, you know, the, the way the game is changing, obviously it'd be really tough to do that in the NBA playoffs, the way the ball was going up the last few months. So it's, you know, different, different levels, different styles work different ways, but the most efficient shot is always still a layup or a free throw. So we wanted to, to take that away and base everything we did defensively off that. Well, that's great so, to hear. And maybe, maybe just go a little deeper into that then and help us understand how did you take away the paint? Obviously you help at the rim, you know, instead of pack line more, is that what we're talking about in terms of that? Yeah, so we wouldn't deny. You know, we were not a deny team. If we were one pass away, we would try to be in what we call a shift. We wanted you to be, you know, kind of open your your arms 45 degrees or pistols up, whatever you want to call it, to the ball and to your man so where you can see both, but in a position where we're always clogging that driving lane one, one pass away. So he sees two bodies either side of his defender, and, and those driving lanes are shrunk, and he's thinking about it now. As the ball would come close to the rim, some of those responsibilities on who was clogging the paint would shift depending on matchups and things like that. But the priority, the mindset, the focus, the messaging was always protect the paint, protect the rim. And that, you know, and getting film sessions, 
we would show graphs about how we would we allowed 10% less field goal attempts at a rim than anybody else in the league. And, and we reinforced the message. And we would, you know, we talked about the low man defender. Everybody's maybe have different names for it, but that help side defender, we called the MIG, the most important guy. He was always going to be active and engaged and ready to help in any situation. And then we'd, we'd have to rotate off of that. But that was a huge part of our, our defense is no matter what happens, if someone falls down, if someone gets beat, we have to have help at the rim. We're never going to give a layup. You know, we were, we, we called ourselves an NFL team, you know, no layups. You can fill in the blanks. So that was, uh, that was our mantra. And, and that's how we tried to live and make people make jump shots to beat us. What did you emphasize in terms of stance on the ball then? Yeah. So we were a really square stance team. I think if, if you're going to be no middle, there's, there's a lot of positives and qualities to that. That was how I grew up. And, and even in the NBA, my first few years, it was always no middle, I think the athleticism and some of the, the quick line drives, especially with NBA spacing, sometimes it's hard to stay in front if you get a little bit too closed off forcing a baseline and you can just get blown by. So I think the NBA in a whole is shifting towards more square stances, but that was, you know, it also mirrored our pick and roll defense where we were not influencing him one way or away from the screen. It was just a two-on-two coverage with the big back and the guy of the ball making his own decisions on how to, to harass the ball handler and, and just do what he can to get back in front. So giving that guy on the ball a lot of freedom, we didn't want to impact his footwork one way or another too much and just try to stay really square. So the square stance thing, I've heard that come up a number of times and my bunch of coaches have asked me questions about it. So the one challenge I imagine is it removes – the most likely to get beat situation where you know you're most likely to get beat baseline or you're most likely to get beat middle. So your help is loaded to be able to cover that first. Can you talk to us a little bit about removing that uncertainty in that square stance? Yeah. So for us, we prioritize shifts and we really wanted to shrink the floor with that one pass away guy. And if they just wanted to swing, we, we worked on closeouts every single day. And we tried to be really good at closing out and taking away three while also staying square to not get blown by. And so that was a daily drill, a daily emphasis that we would work on. And so that was a huge part of how we try to take away that uncertainty where, hey, if you got to step on you, no matter what, hopefully you're going to have some shift help. But if not, no matter if they got beat baseline or beat middle, we knew that MIG was going to be there and we'll have to figure out the rotations behind it. You know, different people can rotate different ways depending on the level, if you're going big for big or, or however you want to do it. But that was, that was going to be a non-negotiable, whether the, the, the drive was coming from middle or baseline, if, if needed help needed to be at the rim, that guy better be there and, and we'll, we'll take your man. We'll rotate around it. Hey coach. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a product I love and have used with my teams and now with my daughters in our backyard. Dr. Dish. Use promo code immersion for exclusive savings on any of the machines. Dr. Dish basketball is accelerating player performance with the most innovative game-like training solution available, allowing coaches and players to get better faster than ever before. By providing the most usable and advanced shooting machines, on-demand workouts, multiplayer stat tracking, and instant analytics, Dr. Dish basketball has become the preferred source for basketball training with progressive coaches and players. A reminder, use promo code IMMERSION for exclusive savings on any of the machines. That's awesome. And so uh, emphasis in terms of closeouts are more short closeouts than long closeouts because you're emphasizing not getting beat, but then you're more likely to give up a three and that's what you're okay with is what you're saying. 
Yeah, we gave up the highest rate of threes in the league, you know, similar to the Bucks a few years ago. It was protect the rim and, and give up shooting threes. I think a little bit of a misconception in that, though, is a lot of times those threes were coming to people that we want them to come to, or, or not that we want, but we were comfortable. We would say, hey, if they want to shoot 10 threes tonight, we'll, and they make five, tip your hat, and, and that's going to happen sometimes. But we would pick certain guys, and that would be sometimes where the rotations would stop things like that. But yeah, at the end of the day, when you protect, when you place that much of an emphasis on packing the paint and having bodies there, you're going to put yourself in long closeouts. Back to your original question. We really, there were certain guys that we would say, hey, we need to try to get them off the line as much as we can. We would try to discourage the full-on flyby because again, I think it puts you in a really tough driving kick situations at times, but we would try to close all the way to bodies on certain guys, make them bounce it if we could. And there, you know, like you said, there was other guys we'd short close out and well, we tried to emphasize no dare shots. We wanted to, to get a hand and contest everything from every player, no matter what. We, we didn't want to turn our back, so to speak, because the numbers say that if you can get your body close enough and a hand up, their chances of making the shot, you know, drop quite a bit. So we tried to do that no matter what, no matter who the shooter was. But there were a lot of short closeouts depending on who the rotation was. Well, and imagine a big emphasis on knowing who the non-shooters are and not rotating or not covering them as, as tight, obviously. Yeah, and we, we had terms. We called it a hot guy and a plug guy. If it was a hot guy, your shifts were probably a little shorter. You know, you're, you're knowing where that guy's at. You're trying to make him bounce it more often than not. And a plug guy was you're plugging up the action from any spot. You can help from anywhere. You're just in the paint ready. And if he catches it on the perimeter, we'll close out short, and then we'll, we'll make decisions from there. And your defense is malleable, I'm sure, in terms of scout and different things like that. But one thing that you shared with me is you can't do everything. Build your base first. But then you can add your adjustments after the fact. So I'm more curious then with building your base, how long did you feel it took for you? And with all your experiences with all these past situations, how long does it generally take to build the base before you can start to get into adjustments and variations? Yeah, I think it depends. You know, I go back to Bud's Atlanta team and that was a great example of the first year we got there was kind of a, a new roster. Paul Millsap came in. They did re-sign Kyle, brought in Damari Carroll with Jeff and Al. And it was a good team. There was a lot of injuries. You could see that the, 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 there was something there, but we were, you know, kind of hurt middle and through the way. And we were eight seed. We ended up taking the Pacers to seven games and had a game at home to win. But the, the habits we built that year playing our base pick and roll coverage the whole year again with with some variation but a ton of a ton of ton of base push what we call it ice down you know a lot of different names for it but the year two all those habits and it was again it was on both sides of the ball but really came to fruition and bud's a little bit like me he's a, a pretty rigid in his defenses he, he likes to set him up and we'll build our habits and and we'll play and we'll play and we'll play and we're really gonna have to force you to beat us doing that and and adjust if we have to and we were probably the same way or I've been the same way in my coaching career. I think I've seen and I've been a part of teams that you try to do this one week and then this the next week and then this the next week and I'll try to get ready for camp or I'll try to get ready for game one. So you have five or six coverages in and then you get to game one and you don't do any of them well. And you're learning how to try to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks for the first month or two of the season until maybe you find settle on a coverage or a series of coverages that are working for you. And I just think if you can build your habits properly and your players don't have to think they can just react and play and be aggressive, especially defensively over time, the, the, the dividends you're going to pay are going to outweigh the marginal gains you might get from scouting a player or a player differently massively game night to night or game to game. 
What you're saying sounds particularly applicable to high school coaches, you know, who have less time and again, like set your base. And then what I'm imagining based on what you're saying is that you're less worried about how they recover and there's more variability in how they can recover, but less variability on the front end in terms of say your pick and roll defense, as you said, two players involved, but it gives them optionality in terms of recovery from those other spots. Is that kind of what I'm gathering? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we would set up a lot of our scouting. I mean, again, we, we ran the same pick and roll coverage every night. We, you know, that was our, our base was the same every night. We might change our post coverage based on a player or two here and there. Again, same thing off screens, things like that. But mostly it was, it was the base every night. And we'd have some adjustments. We'd throw in games with switches and things like that. But it allowed our players to get really comfortable and, and to form an identity and to, to know how to play that way. And to your point about when we kind of released some other stuff, we worked on kind of just a matchup switching zone as the year went on. And, you know, I know when Will Weaver here was here, I think they worked on a triangle and two behind the scenes and brought it out late. And I think having your base and then building something in practice behind the scenes and then, you know, kind of testing the waters when you feel right a few games and then work on that. And now you have something maybe in your arsenal as a counter. And if, then you get that, maybe you can go into the next and the next. But I think coaches get really get themselves in trouble at times, either trying to put in everything so that they can cover their bases for all. And especially the younger age, these kids can't understand the reasons behind the coverages of all different sorts. And think think on the fly about all that stuff. Like you'd rather them understand what you want out of maybe one or two and be really good at that and 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 hang your hat on that rather than trying to out or out coach with coverages night to night and your players are like, I don't really know how to do this well. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I want to go a little deeper then on the two and two mirror pick and roll defense. Okay. So the big responsibility in drop coverage basically is don't give up a layup and stay in touch with your defender. So don't let your defender get behind you or sorry, your offensive player get behind you. Yeah, so for our, our big or our screeners, man responsibilities, because we would go one through five a lot. So our point guard, if his man wants to set a screen, he would technically be in, in center field. And the big's responsibilities were, firstly, we wanted to try to square the ball, to slow that ball handler down, to give the guy chasing or, or shooting the gap or fighting for the screen, however he was, a chance to get back in front. So we wanted to slow him down by squaring the ball if we could. And, and however deep that needed to be, to keep both the ball and the roller in front of them so they can't get beat on a, a drop pass or a lob. That's, that was their you know, level. And, and different players have different levels, like, you know, really, really good athletes that can bluff and get back and, and mess with people. Maybe they're a little higher. The Brooke Lopez's of the world, you know, they kind of, the Rudy Gobert's, they sit back in their little in-between or, or deep space and, you know, wait for the action and, and wait to be influential at the rim where they're best. So a little bit coaching individuals on that, where they're best understanding and try to get the best out of them. But really the two responsibilities were square the ball and keep it all in front, both the ball and the roller. Yeah. And then the guy on the ball, it was don't get screened. You know, it's a simple, simply said, harder done. And, but. and they could go any way you want in terms of getting recovery. But what, what did you consider recovery for them? So we were, pretty hard line on we didn't want to switch if possible so you know we would give them a ton of freedom to just keep coming keep coming keep coming and if, if that big was keeping the roller and the ball in front 
there should always be time in theory to get back in front. Now it doesn't always work out that way and you have to switch some to the roller quick and things like that. But we wanted to give that guy a lot of freedom, especially early in the year. We really mandated that that guy would keep coming and just try to get, maybe it's the rear view. You know, we, we, a lot of times would like them to take some shot outside of eight feet or outside of six feet. Even if it's a floater, we're like, if they take that and we have some sort of challenge from the rear view, we'll live. And that's not a layup. It's, it's not a three, it's not a free throw. So the more times we could force those long non-paint, non-rim twos with a, with a contest, even if it was from behind from that guard chase, that was what we were looking for. And you talked about them on the ball being square. So you weren't worried about them getting rejected as much as traditional teams might in terms of forcing it into the screen. No, because our big was never up at the level and our big was never outside his screener, so to speak. He was kind of sitting back and waiting. And once the ball handler made his decision, whichever way he was coming off, he's going to present himself to square the ball by, well, still, you know, staying at an angle that keeps everything in front. And then we'll, again, and the other part of it I go back to is our shifts. You know, everybody else, more so than a normal stance, we hear pick and roll or we know pick and roll is there. Everybody's really shrinking the floor and making him get that ball out of his hands and then again, won't close out. And but they're not helping, right? Off the ball, you don't want them to help, but they're taking away the perception of space, right? Yeah. So what I we would like to say is show five and guard with two or, you know, what I the real phrase I would use is crowd the picture. Make it look crowded. Make him see five bodies in the paint. And then he's thinking, I got to pass it. And everybody knows their responsibility is their own man in that situation. But just trying to make it look crowded to shrink those angles, both for the driver and for the roller. Well, again, thank you for this. Like uh, You're increasing my depth of understanding with this. So this is awesome. One maybe last thing is, what is the advantage of the ball handler or of the player defending the ball handler playing more square than forcing to a spot? I in think pick and roll in a pick and roll. So for the biggest thing, again, in, in a in a down or an ice coverage, you want that, and you want to keep them on the side. And I've been a part of teams where we've used that almost exclusively, and really good. I think that's a very viable defense, depending on how you coach it, and and can be really effective in center field. I think square is better because the second you open your hips and you get on their side, they're by you, um, and, and and so you can influence them one way but you're for sure playing from behind and having to try to somehow navigate getting back in front. You know, I watched Drew Holiday and PJ Tucker in the finals get through screens like I've never seen before in both the Brooklyn series and the Phoenix series. We played a ton of center field with Brooke back in both those series. And it was a a few other guys, but in large part, it was PJ and it was Drew. And if they opened their hips, you're, you're, you're almost toast against those guys in so many ways because they got you on their back, you'll get fouls, they'll do whatever they can. It's really hard to guard. Drew especially is elite at staying square on the ball and that screen comes, he just closes the gap into his man and, and, and just stays connected and, and doesn't get screened. He just kind of osmosis his way through the screen and bulldogs his way right to the other side by just how physical and strong and quick He's so good with his hands, but I think you can coach that. And I think there's ways to, to get really good at, at closing the gap. I think it all starts with that in center field. That's probably the one other thing we didn't talk about on the ball is anytime you hear that call, you have to close the gap. You can't be sitting duck off your man square. Cause then you're just, again, you'll be playing from behind all night long. You got to get up in your man and, and hope you can enforce the ball handle a little back or whatever it is um, to then create that space to, to stay square, to stay in front. And now you don't have to to play from behind or, or to fight to get back in front. 
Great stuff. And you mentioned already uh, one of your non-negotiables, transition defense. You shared a few others, rebounding, help side responsibilities. Talk about drilling those daily. But more curious to me is, again, you've shared this with me, but let's share it with everyone. This concept of tracking your progress, you're tracking your non-negotiables. Can you talk more about that in terms of the depth of measuring your defense? It's funny. I use the word non-negotiables in my notes. I don't, I don't really like the word. I don't use it with our team or anything like that. It's just but everyone just, understands. I get it. Yeah. It, it really, what I mean by that, it's your habits. Like what, yeah. what, what habits are you going to die on? And, you know, I talked about for us, it was transition defense, you know, rebounding oftentimes in our pick and roll defense. And to answer your question about measuring and tracking, I think whatever you decide is the most important things to your defense of what you matter most. You know, I've been on teams where they track charges and it felt like that was a huge part of their identity and their culture, so to speak. And whatever it is, I think you should find ways to, to try to measure either as an individual or as a team, how you're doing defensively. And, you know, at higher levels, it's easier because we've got websites with, you know, spreadsheets telling us our offense, defensive rating, opponent effective field goal percentage, all that stuff. But it, whatever level that you're at, there's some way you can quantify what you're doing, especially as a defense. Offensively, the numbers are, you know, great. It are they what they are? But I think defensively is what you can really control on a, on a night in, night out basis. And so finding ways where you can measure and, and talk to your team and hold them accountable and have them hold each other accountable um, to the standards you set defensively. Because Offense is, you know, it's ambiguous. There's, there's art, artistry. Defense is a, is a unit working together to, to achieve a common goal. And they have to be in sync and they have to be on the same page at all times or it's not going to work. Because that game never been a game zero to zero. So offense go score a lot of points. To be good on defense, you really have to be connected and together. And so finding out what matters to you, finding out ways you can track some of that and have that interactive feedback with your team so they know where you think you're at and where you want to get to. Well, it, it, it helps us lead into offense. And that is this concept of now that you've built your defense, how are you building your offense? And what are some things that you're considering in terms of initially you're deciding what type of offense to run with this team? And again, you've been in a lot of different situations. So I imagine there's a lot of variability. Yeah, it's, it's, that's one that's, you know, very much probably the, the flavor, flavor of the coach that really you get to see come out and what you decide how you want to set up your team offensively, because that's where really there's a billion different ways you can do things and, and actions to go with. And I think part of it probably should be dependent, dependent on the players you have. If you got a bunch of 6'10 dominant big men and no point guards. You probably don't want to run a lot of pick and rolls. You probably want to throw the ball inside more. And, you know, if you have a different type of roster, you did different type of things. So I think that comes into it. But also, you know, we've set our team up the last few years where we try to play positionless and it, it didn't really matter what size or skill you had. You kind of had to fit into this mold of, of a style of play. And if you didn't have kind of a generic basketball set, you're probably going to get left behind in some ways. And that's got its pros and cons too. There's the, again, there's, there's a ton of different ways you can set up your offense. I think the biggest thing you need to decide is what do you want to get done? What, what are you trying to accomplish on, on, a, on a possession? What, what looks like a good possession to you? Is that a paint touch and a kick out? Is it a, is it a drive? Is it a you know post up? You know, you have to decide for your team and, and for you what you're trying to get the most of in any given possession. And for us, it was a bunch of spaced out drives that we can play driving kickoff of and a bunch of spaced out pick and rolls on top of hopefully playing in transition again with a bunch of space 
you know, the word I keep coming to for us was space. And we played with five out. It's, you know, a trendy way to play right now. It's got its pros and cons. It, it, there is great spacing to it a lot because it, it voids people of the paint. So any drive, any cut, any roll, any, any slash, anything like that, in theory, there's no one there or there's fewer bodies there to contend with. There's not a post guy and a guy at the high post and, and everything to, to make those cuts or, or drives and rolls more complicated. But around the perimeter, it's much more crowded. You know, there's, there's only so many spots around the perimeter. So it can get a little bunched up at times and it can be easy to defend if people are just switching, if you're not putting diligent pressure on the rim and doing the things that it sets up to do. So for us, it was, it was you know, play with a bunch of pace and a bunch of space. That was really our, our keys. Space the floor and transition by stretching the floor vertically by playing fast and, and creating space that way by leaving players behind in transition. And then in the half court, you know, stretching the floor horizontally and, and spacing the paint and, and bringing those guys outside of the key to, to create room again to, to drive and kick and to do all those things. So those were, were key areas for us. And that was how we set up our offense. We ran to five spots around the perimeter to initiate our, our flow, our motion every time. And it was a good thing for us. There's, you know, if we were a team again with different personnel, it might not have worked so well. And in those five spots, are they designated or are those you can fill any spot? And then, you know, the flow emphasis from there, was it point guard push? Was it hit ahead? Was it early in office, like a two side? What were some of the emphasis, coach? Yeah, no, it was, I think that's the beauty of it a little bit is it was totally unpredictable. It's, it's, it was a true positionless system where anybody could run anywhere, obviously, because we played so much center field and our bigs were dropped so much, our bigs got a ton of rebounds. Xavier Cooks led the league in rebounds. Jarrell Martin was top five or six. Another one of our bigs was number two in the league behind X in defensive rebounds per minute. So we had very good rebounders, but we kept them back to be in a good position to rebound. So when you rebound the ball, you're going to be in trail a lot. And so we, when we played off misses, we really wanted to try to go attack early if we could. And then if not, we were probably getting to some form of early pick and roll, either a, a drag screen or a double drag, maybe a step up, something where we were probably setting an early pick and roll or an early DHO just to get the flow going. If we could play against the non-set defense, we wanted to get it up there quick, get the ball moving side to side, or really get the ball moving vertically straight at the rim more south as quickly as we could and play off that. In, in the half court off dead balls and, and makes and, and things like that, especially in FIBA game, it's intense. Like it would be in college or high school, a lot of pressure in the backcourt, a lot of things like that to disrupt your flow or disrupt your motion that you wouldn't see at the pro level nearly as much. And for us, that was a learning curve too. We had to probably come up with some different alignment sets when things got slow and we were able to get the ball into certain players' hands in certain situations to, to do what we wanted to do when the game was a little slower. But when we played off a miss or we played off of an easy outlet, off a make or miss, we try to get to those five spots. And then we had a number of different actions, really. I know I said it was a lot of pick and roll, but some stagger screens, some wide screens, a lot of different things we could do to try to initiate the offense and, and just get those guys playing towards the end of the year it was fun. I just sat back and, and they, they just hooped a lot. And that was the most fun for a coach. Hey coach. I just want to let you know, basketball immersion is proud to partner with just play. I had the chance to spend some time with just play in new Orleans at the final four. And I was blown away by the next level simplicity and effectiveness of this all in one solution for coaches to prepare faster and connect with today's players. Just Play provides an elite experience for coaches to better teach, scout, and recruit on one platform. Just Play integrates with any video editing solution, 
to streamline how you prepare and engage your players. Sign up for a free demo, www.justplaysolutions.com forward slash bballimmersion. I mean, it all comes back to spacing, as you said already. That's always the answer. And once you have spacing, these things, these conceptual concepts can come together easier. Oh, an assistant in your league mentioned uh, the randomness of a lot of guard guard to guard ball screens that you guys would run to, where a guard would randomly come set a screen and either slip it or set it and different things out of transition, which they found to be one of the hardest things that they had to cover with your team. And can you talk about that? I assume there was some intent to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, when you're playing five out, you need somebody putting pressure on the rim on almost every action, or it's just going to be really stagnant. And so we encourage that. You know, we encourage guards. We talked about guards rolling all the time. It's like no one's ever expecting you to roll. So they're going to be up at the level of screen. And, you know, if you're playing five out, it's not the big in coverage now. The big's maybe at the top of the key or he's at the slot away from the basket. And so those quick, quick slips, quick rolls, things like that were really useful for us. We, we, we played a lot in transition with the double drag. And we had a really good shooter, DJ Vasiljevic, and he would just come set all the time. And I think that confusion that, hey, I'm guarding a really good shooter. I don't want to leave my man to guard the ball. And then he slips out and created some a lot of indecision and things like that. It was good for us. But again, I go back to if you're going to play with all that space, you need to put pressure on the rim some way, somehow, if you're not going to have those bodies just standing there. So it, guards rolling was a huge, huge emphasis for us. Another coach that coached in Australia for the first time said that they were surprised by how many times there was full court pickups. And that's just not as common in the NBA and the G League, is it, in terms of pressuring the ball full court? So I know that's more common at the high school level and below, but can you talk a little bit about some of the counters that you guys used to that type of defense? Yeah, for sure. Early on, it really screwed us up. I, as a coach, I wasn't, I didn't prepare a team well enough for that. I, I don't know if I didn't expect it or I just thought, you know, it's hard to pressure NBA guys in the backcourt because they just go by it. And a little bit of the G League, the same thing. So I, I kind of just lived in that world and, you know, all of a sudden I was like, no, we, we got to work on this and we got to put some time and effort into it. And well, we, we really came to a, a thing we liked where we just put three bodies in the backcourt. And as soon as we could get the ball in bounds, we were, you know, running, 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 running and, and trying to advance it as quickly as we could. And oftentimes you get a layup or two in transition versus the press. And it, it, it calls off the horses pretty quick, even if they have a stop or two. Those layups in transition seem to be backbreaking. So we put a big emphasis on breaking the press with pace, getting bodies, you know, running north south and, and trying to go score off it quickly just so we wouldn't have to deal with it as much, probably. Makes sense. And you mentioned habits and the importance of habits on defense and equally important on offense. But give us some ideas of how you develop some of those habits on offense. Yeah, I think, you know, back to when I talked about putting in your offense, I think whatever you decide, you got to be really diligent and precise in terms of how you teach it and, and, and where you, you know, where you put people in your spacing. If there's any confusion or ambiguity, it's going to continue to slip. And now you're going to get to a point where you don't know where not everyone's on the same page. And so you just got to make sure you're very diligent. I think in, in detail oriented when putting in plays or putting in spacing concepts, things like that. We would have certain drills. Our, our guys probably got sick of, but we do every day almost. Not a ton, but there was a data, you know, a little bank of a few that we would cycle through and, and, and just touch running habits, you know, how we want to run when the ball gets outletted. And it was always wide. You know, we didn't want people running down the middle of the floor because we wanted that space clear to, to run through on a roll or to drive in there with the ball. And if people are rim running and begging for the ball in the post, 
now there's bodies down there and we can't attack the rim and transition and clear past the rim. So we had to work on that. And, and, you know, that's one that, especially for a lot of these kids, especially big kids, you're drilled from a young age. I hey, run right to the rim, go get layups. And we had to break that habit for certain guys and, and find a way to, to get them to, to, again, buy into those habits. And so things like that, you know, again, consistently doing it. Film is huge. I think the more you can show film and then back it up with your, your practice habits and your practice drills, it's huge. And I think those two are, two are the biggest things to do it. And then with that, is there anything that you can share about teaching the detail and teaching timing and spacing that you can share with us that really, really you think helps resonate with players in terms of understanding those things? You know, I'm probably not even the best at teaching that detail. I'm, I think that's one place I still can, can learn and grow. I try to give our guys a lot of freedom and, and sometimes I back myself into to a hole there because then I'm like, no, I actually want this. But I think knowing in just in moments where it's okay to stop practice and say, Hey, no, I don't want you in this spot. I want you one foot over right here. Like that is, and I need you right here. So that this, this closeout angle is a little different or this, you know, help angle is a little different. So I think when it's, when it's apropos and when it's important to just be really detail oriented when you're teaching things. Talk to me about stopping practice, because again, a lot of coaches with, with what I share about a games approach, coaching them while they play the game in the context of the game, that seems to be the professional style of coaching for the most part. So talk to us about stopping practice, how you do that, and then how is that received from your players? Luckily, I got a pretty loud voice, so I, I'm able to coach fly. <laughs> and if I'm trying to let somebody have a message be known, they're probably going to hear it every time. So I try to let them the flow of practice continue as much as I can. You know, we talk about efficiency in practice and efficiency of words and drills, and we try to be pretty, you know, one thing to the next and, and keep, get them off their, use their time on feet to the maximum. So I try not to sit there and, and stop practice and have, you know, 30 sets of eyeballs sitting there staring at me talk. I think that's probably the less you can do that in the practice, the better. But I think, you know, there are moments when you either have to clean something up or you have to hold them accountable or whatever it is. And I think knowing, picking and choosing those moments, when to stop, when to, you know, draw the attention to you so that you can clearly explain something is important because there are moments like that too, where you just need to have, Hey, everybody needs to hear this, you know, stop. Let's talk about it. We've, we've discussed it. Now we can move on. But again, I think you gotta, you gotta be careful. The more you do that players, you know, they get frustrated. They just want to play. They want to do those things. They don't want to hear you talk. So you got to use your efficiency of words wisely. And you talked about the challenges of, uh, say, let's say a training, a traditional big to not run to the rim and to run wide in a five out. And, and you said five outs a really popular thing nowadays. Can you maybe share with us some of the other challenges and then maybe some of the counters to those challenges that you might face? For example, driving to the to a, driving in two side and not having perfect spacing and reaction. Are we cutting someone? Are we holding someone? What are we doing in some of these things? Yeah, and there's a variety of ways to get to your spacing. I think that's the important thing is knowing what it is and having everybody be on the same page. Whether you're diving somebody in the dunker, which is great too. We utilize that spacing a lot. So they'll, we, we, they'll cut and hold the dunker until they know where to go? Yeah, and see the floor. What we would see is if you could tell, you know, if the ball was coming up and there was two guys ahead of them, we would call it revolve around the ball, meaning everybody at – first guy in the corner would just run the baseline. And instead of clogging the paint by running through the middle of the court, we would just kind of all turn and revolve and, and get our spacing right. If the point guard was ever bringing it up a side of one, we would just come set a double drag. So oftentimes, not always, or, or a regular drag. So 
Um, usually that's off misses. And again, we're just trying to play fast. So if there was, if that side felt crowded, one guy would just get out through the baseline and either again, hold the dunker, get out to the corner and, and we kind of just play. But again, you know, no matter what your running habits are, whether you're five out, whether you're high, low, two bigs, I think you got to be very precise on what they are and holding your guys accountable to them. Further than that, I think it's really important that your running habits match up with your offensive spacing. You want to quickly be able to get from whatever your running habits are into your secondary, you know, action. I, I call it our motion. I don't really think of primary, secondary break way in my head, but for a lot of people, that's what they're talking about. And I think having a way to get from your transition offense to your flow and those running habits into quickly into your, whatever your flow or motion or, or, or just basketball is, making sure those running habits are in alignment with the spacing you want to preach. Because if they're not, it's going to be really clunky in those in-between moments. Coach, one other concept I want to ask about till we circle back a little bit to some of the environment and creating those environments. This concept of the kick, an offensive concept, again, came from one of your league opponents that told me that to counter switches or hedges that you're running this type of kick concept. Can you explain it to us? Yeah. You know, we... In our offense, we try to have a variety of actions that we that could kind of kick off the, the play, so to speak, out of our five out or out of a couple different alignments. And we'd have, you know, almost like a football game and you have some formations and then you have play calls and then kick is basically like a play call for us. We get into the formation a certain way and then for kick, what we were looking for is to set a sideline pick and roll and usually what we were trying to do is attack versus either a hedge or a switch and having that big defender. So he's extended away from the action, either hedging or switching onto the ball. And we would just try to kick it right across the floor and come set an immediate step up. And now that secondary pick and roll, that guy was in probably a help position on the initial pick and roll. So he's slower to get up to the level of the screen to either hedge or to switch on that, that quick second pick and roll. And also now when we're playing the role or we're playing the action behind it, the initial big or the initial defenders guarding the screener that probably switched or hedged on the ball is far out of position to help on the second screen too. So it's a way to hopefully loosen up the pressure on the second pick and roll and also put the defense in a situation where if they want to do you know, either switching or hedging, they're probably going to pull their primary rim protector far away from the action on the second pick and roll and then give us an opportunity to, to attack the rim there. Uh, Does that make sense? There's yeah, no, that's awesome. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that insider information is uh, why we run this podcast. So that's awesome. And uh, of course, with all this technical tactical, we need to circle back to environment and creating the right environment. And, you know, particularly let's maybe go back to and talk a little bit more detail about creating competitiveness because that seems to be a big part of, you know, any coach's doctrine is obviously creating a competitive environment. Yeah. You know, the words that, that coach Bud always used both in Atlanta and Milwaukee was competitive and together, you know, you heard Darwin Ham who just got the job in LA and he, the three words he talked about, I saw in a tweet was, you know, we'll, we'll be competitive together and accountable. And it's, you know, kind of a variation of that. It's funny, I go back to that that first staff. The first year I got to work in the NBA on the coaching side, it's for Mike Budenholzer, and the assistants were Kenny Atkinson, Quinn Snyder, Darvin Ham, and Taylor Jenkins. I mean, it, it's quite a, a staff to, group. <laughs> to get to be a part of. And in terms of building your culture and building your environment, that's that's one of the biggest things you can get right is, is hiring the right people alongside of you. 
depending on the number, might be one, might be two, you know, might be a bunch, but finding the right people to work alongside goes a long way in building all that stuff. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, I was just going to ask, because I mean, accountability, again, such, such a coach word, you know, but in practice, it's harder than saying it clearly. So can you give us some examples of how you hold an NBA player or professional player accountable? Because I think sometimes that's lost on the general fan or whatever, that you can actually do that. Yeah, it's funny. I'm of a belief, and I know the modern athlete can be a little different, that a lot, almost all these guys want to be coached. They really do. And they might be fiery sometimes. You know, it's it's a competitive deal. The, the, the game is uh, brings emotions out of all of us. And it's okay to have friction sometimes. I think sometimes we get scared because a, a $50 million player snaps back at us or yells. And, and you know, I, that, that, it's a reality. I, I, you would be too. There's that, you know, high value people getting on you in a highly competitive or highly intense environment. So it takes a little bit of confidence and, and belief in yourself and what you're saying to, to be able to do it. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to build a relationship. It starts with having a trust built up and, and, and a common understanding and unity that we're all working towards the same page. I'm here to try to get you better. We're here to try to get the team better and we're here to win. And if you're all aligned on that and, and you trust and respect that from both parties, it's easy to say, what the heck are you doing? You, know, you should be there on that coverage. You, you got to, hey, you're not working hard enough in this area. Like you, you got to put in the hours or put in this. And those are real conversations. And those guys didn't get to the NBA by accident. Like they're hard workers. They, they, they put in a lot of time and effort and sacrifice to get to where they, they want to go. So they're they're willing to be coached and they're willing to work and to put in the effort. It's just about putting in the time to earn their trust to, so they allow you to coach them. You've referenced a lot, Coach Bud, obviously, but you've been around some other really great coaches and, and coaches in really new environments, as you mentioned at the beginning. So let's talk maybe Fred Hoiberg. What are some things you took away from Coach Hoiberg? Yeah, Fred, one of my favorite people in the world, like literally just the nicest human being you could be around. And I think you know, Freddie walked into a really tough environment in Chicago. It was a team that had been together and and had championship aspirations and, you know, got close, but that, you know, under Coach Tibbs, that group had run its course, let's say, and they needed some freshness. And hindsight, it was probably, that was the life of the, the you know, the, the life of that group had probably expired. And, you know, we ended up, t- they ended up tearing down a year later and, and going a different direction in a lot of pieces. But one thing I think Freddie did really well throughout the whole process is no matter when times were harder or, or not, he stayed really, really even keeled. And, you know, there was a lot of things as a staff we could have done better. That environment was tough. Jimmy was coming into his own. There was the old guard kind of coming, you know, Pau, Joakim on the back end of their career, Derek coming back from injuries, a lot of dynamics, but Freddie really stayed even keeled. And I think that was the only way that team even had a chance because I, I think a volatile situation might have said it was a miracle that we maybe made it to the end of the season. But one thing I think that hurt that group a lot was that we were always focused on the championship and, and the standings. And it was a team that had been so close and there was there was nothing else that mattered. It was championship or bust. Like that was that team. And they, they'd been there. They'd gotten to the conference finals. They were so close. They'd been the number one seed. All that was left was to, you know, go get there and do it. And so I think we all spent too much time or negative energy focused on things that weren't about the process and things that we couldn't control. And it came back to bite us in the end. We had, we had a ton of injury problems, all sorts of things. But I think when those things hit, we didn't have a process based to come back to. We weren't, you know, it was 
oh, now the goal's in jeopardy. Now this is in jeopardy because X, Y, and Z happens instead of just staying true to a diligent process every time. So that was some great, you know, lessons from Freddie. I think, you know. And are you suggesting that was that was player driven more than coach or driven in that sense, right? He came into that situation and inherited those players. Yeah, you know, it was just that 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 team. I mean, it was it was things we did as staff too. I mean, yeah. it was everybody. We were we were all hyper focused. We felt we had a really championship level team with a lot of really good players, and we knew where the expectations were at. And it was you know new system on both sides of the ball, and it just never really gelled in the right ways. And I think you know not knowing what each and every day, what you know. I think we, we, we got chased in the next game, the next win. And, and so each and every day, what are our habits? What are, what do we, you know, go back to non-negotiables a little bit. I think those things became ambiguous throughout the season because we were changing so much and evolving and it was, it was tough to, to have a home base to, to go back to, you know, that's where Bud, I think in terms of program building is, is elite. You know, you look at what he did quickly in Atlanta, what he did immediately in Milwaukee, and then what Taylor took and what did in Memphis quickly, what Quinn took and, and did quickly in Utah. Kenny, I mean, took one of the worst rosters you've ever seen to the playoffs in, in Brooklyn when they were trying to lose. And I think that all starts, I go back, those guys knew how to create environments to, to build competitiveness. And I think going back to your initial question 10 minutes ago now, rounding it out, Creating competitiveness in practice is huge. Every drill that we do, we try to make it a scoring or a competitive aspect in some way. So it's not just going out there and going through the motions. You're going out there and there's a winner and there's a loser. Oftentimes for us, the loser would hop on the line and maybe you shot some free throws to get out of running. But there was something on the line every time we ran a drill or played. And sometimes it was betting the coaches 10 push-ups or a sprint suicide that they wouldn't get to a certain number of drill or whatever it was. We just really wanted to keep that competitive spirit as much as we could. And, you know, I, my time at Kansas, Coach Self would, you know, he would encourage dust-ups in practice at times. I think he, he liked to know that we were cared enough um, to get into it with each other and hold each other accountable and things like that. And I, I feel the same way. Like, I, I love when guys chirp. And if you have to break up a little square off every now and then in practice, it probably means you're doing something right. So, and so the competitive aspect of your practices, as much as you can get the guys prepared, we have a, we had a wins board. We had a board, we track wins each and every day. And we tried to award the, the guys who won the most. Coach Horberg, tremendous human being. One of the few NBA head coaches that has ever come up and said hello to me at a practice and not in judgment of the others. I get it. But just the way he did it was genuine and personal. It was just unbelievable. And the relationship obviously continued a little bit because he was the same way on the podcast, just tremendous human being. And then another amazing human being, Josh, Josh Longstaff, who has done the podcast as well. And, you know, someone who has, you've been part of his staff as well as a new coach. Yeah, it's funny going to work for Josh. I just come out of Chicago and didn't know what I was going to do next and looked at the G League. And I thought, I felt that I was qualified to be interviewed for head coaching positions and I didn't have any calls and how that frustrated me a little bit but I got an opportunity to go work for Josh and and Malik and Erie and I quickly realized that I was nowhere near ready or prepared for that type of job and learning from Josh again how to prepare again I think when you want to build a a environment or a culture or program whatever it is you have to prepare and you have to be ready you can't just wing it on the fly and say today we're going to do this and that and I think Josh's preparation is a 
And he's as elite as a person, his delivery is great too. He brings a ton of energy, but he knows what he wants to do every day. And he sets out with such a great plan that he's going to follow through more often than not. And his daily persistence with that really resonated with me. And I think we brought a team that was an expansion franchise in the G League all the way to the, to the conference finals after starting seven and 13. And it was a big late season dividends being paid on the habits that we built early in the year. And again, it's another situation we didn't vary very much. We were pretty rigid in the way we set up, but it was those habits late in the year really started to show. We started playing really good basketball. And then another coach spent time with Connor Johnson. And again, like there's, this has been good for you, hasn't it? Being around young coaches like Connor and Josh and uh, you with the same goals in mind. And it puts you in a situation where you were successful in your first G League experience as well. Yeah, no, Connor was terrific because he's such an idea man. He's got great ideas and he thinks outside the box and he's willing to try. Can I say to the point that he became a member of Basketball Immersion as well? So, and that tried to expand his mind that way. And no surprise based on what you're saying. Yeah, he's just, he's a very curious dude. And I really got enjoyed working with him. He's a good friend, you know, always will be. But yeah, just that curiosity to try anything. And I got to see so many different ideas and pick things I liked, things I didn't like. And that was, Connor was willing to do anything and willing to let you go through it. And he really empowered his assistants too. Probably prepared me more even than I was to be ready to be a head coach because of how much he empowered the people around him to do a lot. And he got us all ready for for you know, the next steps. And he's just a a really fun person to talk to because he is so curious and he has so many different ideas and and questions that it is you're building a program. That's something to to keep in mind. You know, you have these ideas in your head about how you want to do things and certain ways you've thought about for your whole life. Well, this is how I'm going to do it. Don't forget to keep asking questions and to keep experimenting when you get there too, because I think that's really important because you might find a great idea come out of left field. Well, you seem to be that guy as well with a lot of ideas and, you know, a lot of fun coaching in different places and going back to Australia next year, you got to be excited to go defend your title, right? Yeah, no, it's going to be a tough task. It's a, it's a fun league. It's a tough league, but got a great staff and group of players to work with. So I'm fired up to get back down to Sydney. And one of the challenges in that league is familiarity, right? That you see each other a lot because there's only a certain number of teams. Is that, is that got to be the biggest challenge? Yeah, no, I mean, 10 teams, you play each other a bunch. Everybody's well scouted. It's really about executing. It's, you know, tough to win on the road, physical, physical league. So you have to be ready to bring it, you know, each and every night. So we enjoyed the challenge, fun league. You know, we had almost 20,000 people for our finals game, game three. And it was, yeah, it's, it's an up and coming league. A lot of fun to be a part of. Tremendous. And I can't thank you enough, Chase, for sharing the game with us. Uh, super appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at ImmersionVideos.com. At ImmersionVideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. 
And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank you.